Today we want to, uh, we're going into a very, very personal text for me. Um, you know, I'm sure there's certain characters when you read through the Bible, you just kind of go, oh, I relate to that guy. And you learn a lot, by the way, by the people you think you relate to. You know, you start talking to someone, Chooks, he's like, Samson, of course, you know, whatever. And, you know, you talk to Bruno and he can't seem to find anyone Portuguese, perhaps. But, uh, you, know, you, know, you know, you know how that works. You know, you just kind of, well, the, the guy we're going to meet today, or at least a couple of them, the guy you're going to meet today is, is of all the people in Scripture, uh, he's the one that when I look at my past, I relate the most to. Uh, however, uh, my prayer is that as I look to the future, the one person I relate the most to is Jesus. That's the good news. So if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Let's get one to you. And then when you get that Bible, please raise it, um, raise it, raise up that Bible and shake it out. And then open it up to Matthew chapter 8, please. We're at the last portion of it today. We'll read through the text and we'll actually look at a few pictures. That's to 41 DC over there. If you remember last week, the disciples in obedience got into a boat and stepped into the biggest storm of their life, convinced they were going to die. Jesus, of course, stands up, rebukes the wind and the waves, and then calls out to them and asks them about their faith. And then they ask a question, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Well, they're going to get the answer from the strangest candidate. Verse 23. Now, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves. That's where we were last week. And it says then in verse 28, where we are today, when he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. Suddenly they cried out saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from there, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go into the herd of swine. And he said to them, go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Then those who kept them fled. And they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from the region. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I know many of us may even be quite familiar with this text or familiar with the story. But I pray today, no matter where we're at, whether this is the first time we've ever heard this, or whether this is the, we can't count the number time. Open it up in a way that we get today. Speak fluent us today, individually, into our ears, what we need to hear individually as human beings, as people.
Help us, Lord, to to do more than go, cool story, bro. But to let you penetrate our hearts. To let you really speak and may we respond accordingly. And I pray for those who have come in today burdened with hopelessness. Overcome, Lord, with some area or facet of life right now that encumbers them like a giant weight upon their shoulders. I pray today, Lord, you would set them free. That every one of us today will walk out of here healed, transformed. So, Lord, overcome our pride. Overcome our distractive abilities. Lord, overcome all of those things, Lord, that would... Keep us, Lord, from experiencing you the way you want us to today. And redeem every second. May we have so much fun in your word today. Please, today, minister, now I pray. Lord, come upon me in such a way, Lord, that you would do through me what I can't humanly do. And come upon my dear brothers and sisters to open our eyes and our hearts and rip off veils and tear off scales. Let every one of us be transformed now, forever. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority, not me, not any guy with a mic or anyone that's eloquent or whatever the case would be. Before we even dive into the text, I think it's really important to draw out some guidelines and I think it's really important for us to recognize scripturally First of all, I want to make clear that the Bible makes clear that there are physical illnesses and there is possession. And they're different things. In history, there have been those who have been a little bit crazier and quicker to come to conclusions that would assume that every time you have some problem, it's a demon. Scripturally, there are illnesses. There are mental illnesses. And there is possession. In Matthew, this same book, chapter 4, and flip back, if you're in your Bibles, flip back to chapter 4, verse 24. As Jesus began this great healing ministry, we read, that his fame went throughout all of Syria, and they brought to him, oh, go ahead and get there, and they brought to him sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and Torments, Piesanos. Piesanos, the word for torment, is the word we might get the word torture. We might say tortured. These were people who were emotional basket cases. Physical diseases, emotional or mental torments. And, notice the word and, those that were demon-possessed. And epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them. It is important to note that God delineated epilepsy from demon possession. He delineated paralysis from demon possession and illnesses and diseases and mental illness. They were all very different things. It is also important to note that Christians can get sick. There is among the greater teachings under the umbrella or canopy of Christendom, those who would say if you had enough faith, you would never get sick. Well, apparently almost all of Paul's helpers didn't have enough faith then. In Philippians 2.26, it told us that Epaphras, or Epaphroditus, one of Paul's 
primary servants, by the way, that he said, since he was longing for you all, and he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, and indeed he was. Paul says that he became sick almost to the point of death for the gospel's sake. In other words, actually, the guy got sick in service, not out of disobedience, but strangely enough, he got sick in obedience. In 2 Timothy, Paul, as he's about to die and get his head lopped off, he writes to Timothy, it's his final letter, in chapter 4, verse 20. We're looking at about 66, 67 A.D. He tells us that though Erastus had stayed in Corinth, Trophimus, he had left in Miletus sick. But Paul himself, when he writes to the church in Galatia, in chapter 4, verse 13, tells us, you know that it was because of physical infirmity that he preached the gospel to you at first. Paul himself had become very ill. As a matter of fact, many people believe he had malaria. One last key point, and these are just guidelines before we start developing this amazing story, is that Christians can't be possessed. Though Christians can get sick, nowhere in Scripture do you have a Christian getting possessed. As a matter of fact, this is what it says, and if you look at the context in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'm going to start at verse 14, many of you perhaps are familiar with this verse when it says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship does righteousness have with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? And what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What part? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And he says, therefore, come out and be separate. And this is what God says in simplest sense in 2 Corinthians 6. Inside you, there is not a timeshare. God's not into timeshare. God is in the best way, holy and sinlessly selfish with you. I'm thankful for that, by the way, because he wants all of you. And he isn't into sharing. And when God, when the moment, according to Ephesians 1.13, that you said yes, believed on the gospel of your salvation, God came and made his dwelling inside of you. He came and lived inside of you. The house is full. There's the beauty. And there's no way that God is going to share. Jesus makes that clear even when he speaks about being the good shepherd. But if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus, and I'm not here to frighten you, I'm here to let you know that we live in a very weird and wicked world. Nowhere in Scripture do we ever read how a person ever gets a demon possessed, and there are certainly a few in Scripture. We do read about them being transformed. And I'm thankful that God doesn't show how someone does, because to be honest, if they did, someone else would be using it to try to get other people possessed. But let me show you a few pictures, because there was something that kind of struck me this week as I started contemplating this particular story. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with some of these pictures. Is anyone, can anyone tell me, the setting of this picture. Does anyone know? It's the Blitz. The Blitz in London during World War II. Hitler's uh, two bombers, of course, have come in and attacked mercilessly the area. Take a look at some of these. As they kind of look over here at <clears throat> the ruins, by the way, that ultimately, by the way, will be Trafalgar Square. Uh, we can almost say that there's a thing. But I want to show you a few of the other pictures that you may not have seen. Take a look at this one. Can anyone tell me what building that is? That's St. Paul's, yes. St. Paul's was attacked, and it was bombed hard, by the way. However, take a look at the next picture. This is the before and after. You can see how the front, of course, had pretty radically been affected here, but the church still stood. Take a look at the next one. This, by the way, you can see this is St. This is Luke's in Liverpool. Gutted, by the way, by the fire. And today, take a look at St. Luke's. By the way, we may have... Do I have one more picture? No, that's what St. Luke's looks like today. 
By the way, it's beautiful inside. The restoration's been amazing. Next one. Okay, this, by the way, perhaps you might be familiar with. Uh, this right here is uh, St. Botolph's. Does anyone know who St. Botolph is and what Botolph is the saint of? I, I Personally, I don't. But this is Aldgate. For those of you who are familiar with the area of Aldgate, uh, bombed and bombed hard, by the way, of course. Uh, and go ahead and take a look at, by the way, uh, this is what, if you can see it in the distance there, it was the only thing that stood within about a two-mile radius, by the way. Take a look at what it looks like today. That's St. Botolph's today. You could still visit it, by the way. I think I have at least one more. Go ahead and take a look at the next one. This is St. George's in Southwark, as you're familiar with that. And this is what that St. George's looks like today. And here's the point of it. That Jesus had already told us, by the way, about what would happen if you built your house on the sand. That storms are going to come. And when the storms do come, certain things are going to stand and certain things aren't. Now, no doubt... The church, by the way, there's certainly greater buildings. But here's the point of it. What would it be like to be the architect? And to be given this responsibility to build. I mean, to be honest, I mean, being the Calvary Chapel guy, and we normally traditionally meet in things like, you know, abandoned buildings kind of thing. I mean, we're just kind of like scavenger, ragtag kind of people. I remember the first time that when I would go to a place and I'd see these big, gigantic monoliths of churches, and there was a part of me that was so troubled because I'd be like, ah, oh, man, that money could have been given to the poor, and then I sounded like Judas Iscariot saying that. And I, until, by the way, the Lord brought in a whole family of, a whole uh, class and class and class of architects. And when you sit with an architect, it's an entirely different world because imagine given the responsibility of saying, all right, I want you to build a building that when people walk by, they look and go, wow, somebody amazing must live there. Somebody glorious, somebody infinite, somebody almighty must live there. What would you build? I mean, would you build something that was like a little grass hut? Maybe you would. But with the concept in mind, please hear me in this, that this is what we kind of look at. What we look at is in such a setting as these guys, these architects, they've kind of pondered in their mind and like, well, this thing should reach up to the sky and it should point to heaven and it should be like the crystal throne and you should see all these colored windows and when you walk in, you see all this light and it's resplendent with glory and color and magnificence. This should be, this should make you walk in and go, wow. So that if somebody just kind of looked for a moment, what they saw was something so magnificent that they would say, well, whoever lives in there must be amazing. And then to see it bomb like that. I wonder what it would do when you're like, the intention of this thing was to be so glorious, to be so beautiful, to reflect the image of God. But then I look at this and I realize it was man. Of all of God's creations, the universe in its all of its colors, the sea and all of its fish and its crazy things. Have you ever see those things that they kind of come down like this and they've got like marquees and it's like bloop, bloop, and then the teeth come and eat? You know, I mean, like we're just discovering some of these creatures because we are just figuring out how to handle the pressure of getting down that far in the water. God's had them there, you know, as long as he's made them and just kind of waiting for us to catch up. And we see all these things and we go, wow, it's crazy. And then you see, you know, the aurora borealis, the, the northern lights and the colors. And you see the sunsets and you see all these really, really cool things. And God says, you want to see my masterpiece? And then he shows us one of us. And you kind of go, wow, okay. Unless it's some of you because you know that some of the greatest masterpieces isn't something first to look at. Some of the greatest masterpieces is performance art. 
And what makes us the masterpiece is the performance art aspect of it. But imagine that God has, as an architect, this plan, this beautiful thing that he wants to do so that in our life, the way we live it and the things that we do manifest that someone will look and go, wow, someone amazing must live in there. And I want to remind you, this is just a tent. There's a guy that lives inside of it. But this is just a tent. And as this is a tent, you've got to deal with the fact that the tent really is just a shell, but it's the person inside that's supposed to radiate that glory. Now go beyond that now to a person like what we're reading in our story. Now, both this story, by the way, we do read of in Luke and in Mark. And then when we read it in Luke and Mark, the emphasis is on one individual. Interesting, by the way, the term legion, we are many, all of those things that we read about many demons, all of that, we read all about that in the other two accounts. In this one, we read just about two people. And people like to ask, so what is it? Is it there? Are there two people or is there one? But if you've ever actually thought about it from the perspective of a screenwriter or a director, it makes perfect sense. If there's some kind of angle or something you're trying to shoot at, the issue is do you want to tight pan on an individual or do you want to focus on the group? Mark, focusing Jesus as this greatest servant, focuses on one individual because he wants you to know this guy. Luke, as a human, wants to show us the humanity of Christ and the emotion that is gathered. And he shows us that in one guy. But Matthew wants to show Jesus as king of kings and as the greatest king that's ever been. It isn't about one-on-one now except this. It's the powers of evil against my king. And therefore, he's going to bring the whole thing and he's going to pan out. Look at these two guys. More than likely, one of them is possessed by a legion and one may just have one demon. It doesn't really matter. I mean, in the end of it all, it's awful. Only in the Gospel of Matthew do we see it wide enough to see both. But listen to what it says about them and the other two. Because I want to develop this guy, at least the one guy that Marcos, now tight pan on that guy. Look at that guy for a moment. Let's see what he's like. And this is what it says. In Mark 5.3, this man had his dwelling among the tombs. No one could bind him. Not even with chains. He had often been bound with shackles and chains. The chains had been pulled apart by him. The shackles broken in pieces. No one could tame him. Always, night and day, he was in the mountains. He was in the tombs. And he was crying out. He was cutting himself with stones. Mark shows us a really helpless picture of this guy. This whole cutting thing that, by the way, we think is said relatively new to the 80s and beyond. Now, this guy has been into it way before any of that. Bleeding from his ankles, from his wrists. Gouging himself. Driven. Untamable, A menace to society. People had tried to hold him down and he was untamable. But at night, he was crying. And at day, he was crying. In the mountains, he was crying. And in the tombs, he was crying. And I wonder what that would have sounded like. I have a feeling it wouldn't have sounded like crying to us. It would have sounded like those kind of things that they record and play on October 31st for the kids. In Luke 8, verse 27, it says, When Jesus had stepped out there, met him, then a certain man who was from the city. The city would be the city of Gadara, 
from which we read the Gadarenes. Gadara, by the way, was three to seven miles east of the, of the shoreline there. It was, a tire, it was a city of one of the ten of what we call Decapolis. Deca meaning ten. It's the ten Roman cities on the eastern side. It's where soldiers, Roman soldiers, go to retire. And he came from that city. And it says he had had demons for a long time. And it says that he wore no clothes. Nor did he live in a house. But he lived in the tombs. In Luke 8.29 it says that he had been bound with chains and shackles and broke the bonds and were driven by the demon into the wilderness. Now put all of this together for a second. And I want to point out a couple things here. Of the twelve disciples, five of them we know what their previous jobs were. Of the five, four of them were the same. Of the four of the four were partners. Peter, James, John, and Andrew were business partners and they were fishermen. They were fishermen, by the way, who fished on the Sea of Galilee. If you know anything about fishermen who fish on the Sea of Galilee, this is all in Luke 5, by the way. Fishermen fish at night. Simon Peter would say in Luke 5, 5, we fished all night but caught nothing. And I wonder what it would be like. Now, we've been to the Sea of Galilee, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 times. I, I adore it. It's one of my favorite places. It's like, it's like, it is to me what Disneyland is to my wife. Except in some other ways, because it's quiet. And that's one of the reasons I love it. You can get up before the sun rises. It's the only place I get up before the sun rises and I'm thankful for it. And I can watch the sun as a red sun rise over the eastern hills and it is so quiet. You can hear the wind underneath a mud duck as it flies by. Most of us have experienced that those have gone to Israel. By the way, we are praying about potentially going back to Israel in January of, of 2017. So be in prayer about that potential trip. But it gets quiet. And it is so quiet that you could hear just about anything. Now, to put this into perspective for a second, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if Peter, James, John, Andrew, fishing at night, would they have heard it? Would they have heard this guy? Would they have heard this guy crying out, screaming, the screams that he would scream, and what that would do to the people that we're just hearing from a distance, and the reputation that he has to be legion. We're going to see that in a moment here. Now, good Jewish boys never go to the east side. The east side was the least side. And the reason was because that's where there was pigs, clearly from the story. There was well, there were graveyards, and graveyards you don't walk around as a good Jewish boy. It makes you unfit for going to church, to synagogue. And it also, of course, it was a Roman colony. It was basically three strikes throughout. Nothing about it appealed to you. And then there was this guy that you heard the stories about. You could hear, because we read that the guy has got, seemed to have some kind of reputation, that he has this reputation for quite a while. We read, oh, did you ever hear about that guy? And it's like the campfire stories you hear, you know, about the scratching at the windows and the whatever. I mean, you know, imagine what it's like, because you hear, oh, there's that guy, and he's like possessed, and you know, it's a one, it's a million, whatever. You know how those stories get bigger and scarier as they go on and on, and they're hearing these stories, and then at night as they're here, they hear that sound, and there's got to be a part of it that goes, is that... Maybe that's, is that for real? Is that really what they're saying? Is that really possibly that? So imagine when Jesus says, let's get in a boat and go to the other side. And you think, whoa, <laughs> no, we don't do that. But he did. And, and, and as we're there, imagine what it would be like as you get closer and this storm hits that you think you're going to die. Would you think it was the demons? 
Would you think, oh, the demons are creating this storm and they're trying to kill us before we even get on the shore, not knowing that it was actually Jesus who allowed the storm in the first place? I mean, imagine all the things that they were experiencing. How spooked out would you be before you got there? And then you get there. And as you get there, lo and behold, who is your welcoming party? It's Mr. Fantastic himself, the demoniac. But notice, by the way, a couple things. I'm going to be bouncing back between these three stories, but please, the three accounts of it, but please hear me. Again, in in Mark's account, by the way, we read of him as a man. Here, by the way, notice it says that when he came, it says there met him two demon-possessed men. It is important to recognize that though we might have seen him as a lunatic, as a menace to society, as a danger, God still saw him as men, as a man in the other cases. This with both. But please hear this as they approach. In Mark's account, again, listen, no one could bind him, not even with chains. He'd often been bound, but he'd ripped them apart. They couldn't tame him, and at day and night he was cutting himself. He was in the mountains and the tombs crying, cutting himself with stones. This guy was a mess. This guy was a mess, and he was a helpless mess until now. And as he was a mess, listen to what it tells us then in the next verse in Mark chapter 5. And by the way, as I'm about to develop this, please hear me in this. It is really important if we're going to be good Bible students to be careful to notice when it's singular and when it's plural. Now, except for in this case, in Matthew's case, where Matthew's case, where... Obviously, there's two guys, and the other ones, it's really focusing on one guy. All of the polo has to speak about the, the demons. But if it's singular, it's the person. And it's important to note, if it's singular, it's going to be the guy. But it says, listen, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. It doesn't say when they saw Jesus from afar, they ran and worshipped him. When this man that Mark has now played this scene out on us and shown us the crying and the hopelessness and the torture and the ways he's destroying himself and the ways that he's hurting others. And as Matthew says, people wouldn't even go near the place now because this guy was there or these guys were there. I mean, this was a mess. This was a horrible, scary mess. And nobody goes near this, but Jesus is unintimidated. And when this guy, what we read is, listen, listen, listen. This guy with the tempests and holocausts of hell itself dwelling and firing inside of him like a great war in all of this, he sees Jesus from afar and he runs and he worships him. And you know what that tells me? That all of the powers of hell itself cannot stop you if you want to get to the feet of Jesus because he won't let it. There is no way that hell has that power. Not over my king. And there may be times where you feel like there's a battle, but to be honest, the real battle is going to be your will, not the demonic power. Do not blame Satan that you're not at the feet of Jesus because it's not his fault. He can try to blame, he could try to lie, and we'll see that here, but in the end of it all, it's still going to be your choice, and God is not going to stop. God's not going to let anything stop you other than your choice because it's not, it's not worth anything if it's not worth a choice. And the guy falls down at his feet. But listen to these statements, because this is, to me, quite alarming, but also quite opening. Listen, 
It says in verse 29 of our text, it says, suddenly they cried out. So that they, I will assume, could be the demons of the two guys, but just the same. What do we have to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Funny, demons seem to know that there was a time they were not a nihilist. They didn't think that in the end of it all, that it would just cease to exist. What they realized is that there's a day coming and you're going to stand in judgment. But well, listen to this. In Mark chapter 5, and remember, listen carefully. Is it singular or plural? 5, 7. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you or implore you that you don't torment me. We often think that that's the demons crying out. But it was the guy here. (coughs) Excuse me. It says, as a matter of fact, in the Luke text, when this is Luke 8, 28, when he fell, when he saw Jesus, he cried out, he fell down before him and with a loud voice. He said, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. And I get the idea that this guy has been so deceived He's been so brainwashed by all of this demonic activity that at this point, he's actually convinced that if he came to Jesus, Jesus would bang him one instead. Maybe some of you have heard that voice. The thing that says, oh, you've really blown it. Could you believe you did that? I can't believe you did that. Oh, my goodness. You know, Christians don't do that. Or, oh, what kind of human being would even think like that or do this or plan this thing or whatever? You don't want to go to church. You certainly don't want to go and stand before that God. He's angry and he hates you now. Well, is that any different? I mean, we've had people come in and they're like, you know, I swore that if I came in, the roof would cave in on us. And I'm like, well, I think they are trying to repair it. Well, anyways, please, please hear me in this. This is a lie of the enemy. And it is important to recognize that this lie of the enemy will keep you from the one who loves you and can deliver you. So wouldn't it make sense he would lie in such a way? Listen to this. Jesus, in the midst of all of this madness, he's seeking. He's reaching through the hurricane of this madness to find the helpless soul that is mercilessly tossed about in this. In Mark 5, 9, listen, he asked him, what is your name? And he answered, my name is Legion, for we are many. Who did he ask? Did he ask the demon's name or did he ask the man? Listen. He asked him, what is your name? In Luke 8, verse 30, Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? It's singular, by the way. What is your name specifically? And he answered, Legion. Not they answered. He answered, Legion. Because many demons had entered him. His name? Here is this guy. He's going crazy and all this crazy, this madness, all this stuff is happening. And Jesus kind of gets through it all. And he's like, hey, what's your name? He's getting, I'm calling out. Remember, if this is a tent, if this is a tent. Now listen, sickness. <clears throat> what is that? A pathogen has come onto the tent. And as a pathogen has come onto the tent, it's damaging the tent. Isn't that what a sickness does? But there's a person inside this tent. And that's not possession. Possession is when some entity, a malicious malevolent entity has come and dwells into the tent and takes dominion over the person dwelling in the tent. That would be you. And what Jesus is doing at this moment, please hear me, he's not trying to identify, he's not trying to get a name out of the demons. He's calling to the person, he's like, hey, I want to call to the guy in the tent here. 
Are you still there? Where are you? Are you here? Can you hear me? And this guy is like, I'm, I'm, I'm legion. Do you really think he gave himself the name? Do you think his parents said, oh, what a lovely boy. Let's name him Legion. I don't think so. I kind of get the idea that was the name he was given by the people. I kind of get that it was the name he was given because we read he said he has friends and he has family. And somewhere down the line, someone kind of looked and said, you know what? Let's call you crazy guy. Let's call you lunatic. Let's call you madman. A legion, by the way, that's 6,000 or so Roman soldiers. That is the largest group of guys sent at one time as a group. It's a century, and then it's a cohort, which is roughly from 100 to 600. From 600, then you go from about 1,000 to 6,000, and they're collected by their centuries in, in cohorts. And that is the largest group, without saying we have two or three of them. In other words, this is the biggest army of hell we see in Scripture is what you kind of get here until we get to the book of Revelation. But notice in this, Jesus is calling out to this guy, and we don't read that the demons answer, we read that he answers. But even he, listen, he had gotten so absorbed in this thing that his whole identity now is his sickness. His whole identity now is this possession. It's all he knows about himself. Yeah, I know those days. Do you know those days? I remember what it was like before I knew Jesus. I'm glad now because, I, I mean, it gets to this point in your life where when you look, it's like watching a movie where you kind of relate to the person, but you, you don't feel like you're him anymore. I'm so, so thankful for that. But this angry, bitter madman, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have told you I was possessed, but all the symptoms they see here are probably primarily the same. I remember what it was like for people to cross the street when I was coming their way, and it was nothing I was proud of, but it was like I was so angry and bitter that I would walk down the street with just this look on my face that was vacant and just hateful, spiteful. And I was, it was everything dark. And if you had asked me who I was, I would have given you an answer similar. I had no identity of the kid when that's born and someone looks and sees innocence and hope and future and, and all of those things in, I wasn't raised with that. And we don't know how, when this guy contracted this. We don't know whether he's young or old, whether he has kids or he's a kid himself in that sense. We don't read that. What we do read, though, is that he is a mess and he does have a family and he does have friends that I imagine probably aren't spending a lot of time because no one's going near here now. But he's calling out, but listen to this thing. And again, we're looking at things from the perspective of whether it's they or him. Does that make sense? So listen to this. And I get the idea of this because Jesus tells us in John 10, by the way, verse 3, that he's the good shepherd. He calls his sheep by name. And he's like, man, let's get to the guy in the tent again. The guy, by the way, right now, who is just overcome, overcome. In Luke 8.31, they begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. So who begged Jesus there? The demons. It's they. Do you get that? Now, the abyss, if you get that in Scripture, you kind of get the idea why that is. <clears throat> in Revelation 9.1, those crazy flying scorpion-like creatures come flying out of the abyss, the bottomless pits, the same word to Buso. 
Hey, those alone would be enough reason not to want to go there. But it's also Satan's holding cell we see in Revelation 20, verse 3. Definitely not a vacation site. You don't want to go there at all. I didn't get that. But listen to this. In Mark's text, chapter 5, verse 10. Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Is that one of the weirdest things you've heard? I mean, think this through. This guy is possessed by hell itself, if you will, and he personally is begging Jesus not to send them far. Why would he do that when it's destroying him, it's killing him? Have you ever spoken to an addict? You see that same mindset all over it. Somebody that's like, I know that drinking has destroyed my family. I know that just drinking has destroyed my life, my future, everything about me. And you know what? Okay, I want to stop drinking, but let's not go that crazy with it. Pornography destroyed my marriage, destroyed my intimacy, destroyed all of that. But I really can't put a filter on my computer. It's like, you know, go ahead and go ahead and stop it. Just don't let it go far. And it's really hard to watch this because sometimes people could be so caught up in hating the circumstances. And you sit and you go, I want to restore you, but to restore you, this needs to be gone. Not just out of reach. And you watch them go, no, I just want to be able to pad this thing a little bit so that we can kind of cover the fault but not really make the changes that are necessary to make this impossible. And I have very, pardon me for saying, I have very little hope in a person that does that. And you watch this happen. Could the guy be so deceived that he was afraid Jesus would have come there just to torture him? Well, I mean, did he welcome these demons in? We don't know. But he had been so deceived at this point to think that any encounter with God would not be for transformation, not be for his healing or his deliverance, but rather just to condemn him and make his life worse. Wow. And then what kind of lies could you be told at a moment like this to ask this question, this begging? To say, you know, if they're gone, I'll die. I need this thing. I mean, now look at it. He called himself Legion. He called himself Legion. I mean, think about it. It was all he knew. But Jesus didn't recoil. We don't read he ever takes a step back. We don't read that Jesus ever frightens. I imagine the other 12, though, probably would have spent an awful lot of time standing behind Jesus. <laughs> Even Peter. Like that guy would have come up. What are you doing? They'd be all kind of standing behind Jesus, peeking around him. And Jesus would not have, you know, he wouldn't have taken a step back. He'd have been standing like this. I remember they would have said, who can this be that even the winds and seas obey him? Would they have thought they'd gotten the answer from this guy? What do you have to do with us, son of God? First time, in, by the way, in scripture that Jesus is called the son of God. Who would have thought it come from this guy? Please, please, don't torture me. Don't make my life miserable. Are you afraid that if you hand your life over to Jesus, your life's just going to be miserable? Here's the crazy part. If you were honest with yourself, isn't it miserable now? My life was so miserable, I had nothing but to, nothing to lose and all to gain. Or to say, ah, oh, but you can make these changes. Just 
don't send them far. And if you're familiar, that was one of the compromises that Pharaoh offered to Moses. Exactly. And you could go, but you can't go far. Moses is like, God didn't say this is the case. And, you know, let me put it in the simplest perspective. You're in a rotten relationship with someone. I'm just going to play this out for a second. Gina meets this guy. His name is Ferdinand and he's smooth. He's from, you know, he's like half French and he's half Spanish. So he's Franish, you know, he's smooth and he's clever and he's artistic, you know, and he paints with baguettes and he's, I mean, he's, you know, he's got all of these things and sweeps Gina off her feet. And she's like, oh, have you met him? And he sword fights. I mean, he's everything. I'm, I, I prepared to die. You know, he's got it all going on. Right. And all this. But then he turns out to be this real jerk and he's, he's violent with her, you know, and it's like, I don't know, man. I, I, I kind of look at Gina and I kind of think she could probably hold her own. But, you know, just the same. And she but she's bewildered now. She's sitting there with Cam and she's like, I don't know. You know, she's like, I know I need to get out of this relationship. This relationship is a doomed relationship. This guy is horrible and I'm, I'm in danger. And he's threatening the guy's bringing the law in and he's going to get arrested. And if I'm in the house, I'm going to get arrested. And he's doing crazy stuff and he's kicking puppies and he's slapping nuns. And he's he's just he's just a bad guy. And Cam says, girl, you got to move out. You got to get away. I don't want it. And she's like, yeah, well, can I just like not see him but keep his contact? Now, where do you think Cam's going to go with that? Cam's like, "Mm, I don't know about that. And you know how that is where it's like, I'll get kind of distant. So I'm going to kind of. But, you know, sometimes what we do is we play the game where I'm going to I'm going to back off. And kind of pretend like we broke it off, but what I really want is the other one just to pursue a little bit so I can get a little bit of stroke out of that. And then I'm going to kind of wind up backing in again, and I hate it. I'm going to call Jenny. I hate this. Like, get out. Okay, get out. And here I am again. All right, good. We're, we're cool. Oh, always calling. Excuse me. And then you go, and you're like, what are you doing? Change your number. I can't change my number. I'd have to tell 25 contacts. That was hard. 25 contacts. Or whatever it is. And you know how that goes. And we do that with sin and we do that with these things that destroy us. And then we wonder why it is we're off the cliff. But we won't even move inland. It's like I've learned this. If you don't want to drown, move away from the water. How hard was that? Please don't let them go far. Well, interesting. Jesus isn't going to grant his request, but he's going to grant theirs. And so with that, they fear the abyss. This is what the demons seem to have understood. They seem to understand that he was the son of God. They seem to understand that he was the son of the most high God. They seem to understand that there was a time of torment coming and they seem to know who's in control because they're clearly begging. They never demand. They don't even ask. They beg. And it's important to note that. In all of these cases, these demons are begging Jesus for permission. Unique to the Gospel of Matthew, where we see him as king, he says, Go and take a look at that with me as we wrap this around now. It says in verse 30, there was a herd of many swine feeding. Now, a large herd of swine was feeding, we read, and it was near the mountains in Mark 5, but not only near, but also on the mountains in Luke 8:32. They were in a distance. Notice in verse 31, it says that the demons begged him. Well, if you're going to cast this out, Would you permit us, please, to go into the herd of swine? And so he said to them, go. When they came out, they went into the swine. Suddenly, the whole herd of swine ran down violently into the steep place and committed suicide. Sorry. 
Mark 5 says that there were about 2,000 of them. So I had to do kind of a value check on this. Does anyone know the price of a pig today? When was the last time you had to buy yourself a pig? Well, according to the average of right now, it's 50 pence, by the way, per American pound. And the average pig is about 300 pounds. That's a heavy pig. That means that the average pig is worth 1,500 pounds. I had no idea. And if the average pig, we're talking about pork pigs, meat pigs, the average pig is worth about 1,500 pounds and there's roughly 2,000 of them. Can you do the math? We are now talking about a lot of money. And if we're looking at a lot of money like this, we're talking about, at this point now, roughly three mil. You can see why the people were upset. Interesting, the demons would rather be in the pigs than be in the abyss. The pigs would rather commit suicide than be possessed. It says when they, those that were keeping the pigs saw this, they ran like crazy back into the city. That's three to five to seven miles away. They told everyone what had happened. You won't believe about these demon-possessed guys. The people all came out and they begged Jesus one more time. In this case, they came out and they begged him to leave. In Mark 5.15, what they saw was this man that had been so torn up by hell, sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. In Luke's account, we read that he was sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and there could be nothing more sane than being at the feet of Jesus. And when they found out the means in which he had been delivered, the whole multitude of the surrounding regions of the Gadarenes gathered together, and they were seized with fear. They said, go, please leave us. You know, it's interesting, twice in Scripture, Jesus is asked to leave. Once he does and once he doesn't. Here, they ask him to leave, and he leaves. And the situation, the other was is in Luke 5, by the way, where Jesus has been fishing with Peter. And then Simon Peter, with the great catch of fish, Simon says, leave me. I'm a man full of sin. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, don't fear. Interesting. In both cases, it appears as if it's out of fear that we say, you should probably leave now. God, you should probably leave. This is no place for you. But Peter, Jesus says to Peter, don't worry, Peter. From now on, you'll catch men. I know who you are, buddy. You're good. In the end of it all, the man will come to him and say, can I follow you? Can I just be with you now? In Mark 5's text, it says in 5.19, Jesus didn't permit him. He permitted the demons to go into the herd of swine, but he didn't permit the man to follow him. Listen, he says, go home to your friends. Tell them the great things that the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and they marveled. In Luke's account, it says, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Now, please hear me. and We're almost done now. This thing wraps up this way. The guy says, please, let me go back with you. Let me get in this boat and go out. And Jesus is like, no. 
You have a mom. You have a family. You have friends. You have a home. And you haven't been home in a long time. And they, they, Can you imagine Jesus knowing their pain and knowing their grief? Man, they miss you so much. But they've given up. Because you just, you've been a mess. And you need to show them that, that you're different now. And God did it. God could take the most hopeless, the most empty cases there are. And he can actually take such an individual and then say, now go and show people now how you're different. Do you know the next time Jesus will be in this area and he will return to this area? When he does, by the way, he will uh, have to feed 4,000 people and their families. Does that sound familiar? It's Decapolis. You ever wonder where those 4,000 people came from? I kind of get the idea they came from this guy. When he starts talking about how Jesus really touched his life, when he starts talking about how he was been transformed, it all makes sense to me. So it's like, you need to see what God has done. So this is what I want to do. And, and, and please hear me. Uh, often I use this particular story to speak about my testimony. I won't give you that today. But I realize what Jesus has done is he's lunged into and jerked the shadowy figures, creatures of darkness, flung them into the light and said, this is what happens when you play with dark. It's like a bomb in your cathedral. And then we look at these places and I realize this is the architect looking at this man. He's, this is the architect who created a man to show the image, the glory of a beautiful God so that people could look and go, wow, someone amazing must be in there. And then you look and you see this thing just, the bomb goes boom! And your whole life is just in tatters. And you realize why is because something came in that really doesn't belong there. And it only came to destroy. Out of this a song came. So I seldom do this, but this is one of those places where you'll get it. And, and what I would like you to do is, first of all, if you're a Christian here, you've said yes to Jesus and you know you have. My question to you is this. Is there anything you're playing with you shouldn't? Anything you're going near and you just know this is, you, you don't belong in it? You, this is not where you belong. And you are inviting the bombs into your cathedral. Because today would be a great day to get right with it, wouldn't you think? I really believe the Lord is bringing us into a season of healing. And for that to happen, I really would love to see you guys in that place too. But if you haven't said yes to Jesus, I'm inviting you today to say yes to him. Because today, there's no better day than now, no better time than now, to do this. And so this is what I'm going to do for a second. While you contemplate that, I want to share with you a song. And, and it's sad when you, the pastor is a musician, it's almost like, who can tell him no? It's kind of rough, isn't it? Uh, so let me do this. I'm going to try to plug this back in and see if we can get something that doesn't sound horrible. And this comes from, it's called Man of the Tombs. But while this is happening, I'm just praying that the Lord will speak to you about anything that needs to be done. Anything that needs to be changed in you. Just anything that needs to be handed over and saying, Lord, it has been hopeless, but not anymore. I'm not going to let it be hopeless anymore.
Maybe you won't get it at all. See what happens. Oh, I see mine. Hold on. Well, that sounded pretty, didn't it? Okay, let's do this. I'm a man of freedom. I'm a man of 
what he's done for me. Not you, for you. What he's done for me. Lord, I pray right now as we contemplate where we're at with you. More than just a concept or a politic or a club to join. Real people with real problems and real hopelessness and real addictions and real emptiness. And pride that covers the whole thing up that says, don't let anyone know. Don't, don't just, don't open that door. Don't let someone hurt you and point and laugh at you and all the things that keep us from just being able to say, Jesus, would you please reach into my darkness and my madness and pull me out? But here in this room today, there's a difference. And in this room today, there is a God who's calling out to you by name. And if you listen close enough, He'll call you not by your nickname, not by your gang symbol, not by your code name, but by who you really are. Saying, I want you. And I want to use you to touch and transform so many other people. But you were created to reflect the glory of the invincible, immortal, immeasurable, infinite, almighty God. That's the choice you've got to make. I pray for every believer here, God. That there would be none of us playing, sniffing, going around near anything. But Lord, we don't just pray that you would not allow it to be near. But Lord, as you cast our sins as far as east is from west from one infinite direction to the other. Remind us of that. They're never to be retrieved. They're never to be seen again. They're never to be brought up. And in this room, if, there's been, if there be anyone or many who have yet to say yes to this God, to the love that He offered this Son that would be willing to go to the cross and pay for guys like this, and for you too. He's un- intimidated by your darkness. He's unfrightened by your filth. He's, he's not in any way challenged by your weaknesses, by your past, by your frustrations. He just wants you. And the great thing is, is that it's his job to do the work. He does the cleaning. He does the fixing. He does the healing. He does the transforming. And somewhere in the in all of this, this guy knew it. And he made a house call in the darkest of places, but it wasn't dark when he got there. And the moment you lay yourself down and say, Jesus, if this is for real, you really died on the cross for my sins and you really rose again and you really want to deliver me from all of this madness, watch him do it. We stand in testimony of that. And so if that's you today, I just ask you to pray this prayer with me. And at the end of it, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident and resounding Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words now. So be it in my life. And here it is. God, I'm a sinner. I'm in need. You created me to be with you and I haven't been walking with you. I'm not. I've been trying to rely on myself and I've been just so tired of fighting this thing alone. 
And I see my life, I, I'm losing it. I'm losing battles. They show me I'm not all that after all. And as much as my pride and as much as other influences would want to keep me from doing this, I say yes. I say yes to your offer today. If you really want to purify me, you want to cleanse me, you want to deliver me, you want to make me right with you and and thrust out of my life, evict all of this madness, then please do so. And I say yes to you. Please. Please have me now. Faults and all and make me right. As I hand myself to you, I trust that you are the one who paid my price, so you're my ransom. You're the one who delivered me. You're the one who went to the grave to pay for my sins, so you're my Savior. You're the one who rose from the dead, so you're my Lord. Now be the architect of my new life, I pray. Jesus, in your name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to give a confident and resounding, Amen. Lord, you've heard our amens today. You know where we're at. I pray that even right now your joy would so flood the hearts of those who've said yes today. That you would so secure and cement in that conviction that it would be, that they even as I remember would be so amazed at the changes you wrought in us now. We commit all of this to you and pray now, Lord, give us a heart for the men of the tombs. Unintimidated by it. Recognizing greater are you who is in us than he who is in the world. As we say yes to you again. Not because we have to, but because we want to. In Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, thank you. Thank you for the privilege of being able to walk with you in the word today. For the honor of being your pastor.